I'm sitting at the office of Stephen Owen at UBC this wonderful sunny day in August uh, 2009. Hello. Hello there. Thank uh, you for coming by. Oh, uh, my pleasure. And what a wonderful um, surprise to see CUSO alive and well and uh, in your presence. <laughs> my pleasure to, to be here. I wondered, please tell me, Stephen, about your experience with CUSO. When did you go? Where did you go? Well, my wife Diane Kerner and I went in September 2005, August 2000, sorry, <laughs> excuse me, 1975. 1975, yes. Yes, a while ago. Yes. Um, we went, we had first, um, I suppose, got interested in CUSO and in Africa in particular because we'd spent a year doing graduate work in London. Oh. And we were, I was at University College London and I had... Uh, doing a Master's of International Law, and I had classmates from all over the world. And the mid-70s in Africa was a very exciting time. Yes. Um, I mean, in some ways beginning to be tragic, in some ways still in the flower of independence, post-independence. Um, we had met a lot of Africans, and we were quite um, moved by the situation, the potential, and yet the struggles in the continent. So we came back, and I was practicing law, and my wife was teaching, uh, which were our respective fields. And after being back for less than a year, we decided we weren't really, we were in our mid-twenties, and we weren't quite ready to join the middle class and have children. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted to do something of a, of a um, service nature. And so we wandered down to one morning after... Uh, to what was the CUSO office in Vancouver then, and said, take us to Africa if you want us. <laughs> okay. Now I, now the, the, at that time, um, one of the major roles that CUSO uh, volunteers played was as in teaching in village yes. schools. And my wife was actually legitimate. She was a teacher. And, <laughs> and a lot of them weren't. <laughs> All of them weren't, including myself, <laughs> okay. as it turned out. And so the first suggestion, the first ideas that came back that we might be interested in when they said they thought we would, we were barely acceptable, um, <laughs> they thought that, well, we'd go, I could teach in a, in a law school, um, and my wife could teach in a teacher's college, because we'd both done graduate work in those fields. And then we started to look at the possibilities and realized that that really wasn't what we were interested in, that would necessitate being in a big city. Oh. And we were really much more interested in a rural experience. And so then we were offered um, a place uh, near, called Waka, W-A-K-A, -A, uh, which was... What uh, country is this in? It's in Nigeria, Nigeria, northeast Nigeria. Okay. So near my degree, where the horrors have been going on the last few weeks, mm. um, interestingly, against... Uh, it's an Islamic um, terrorist group yes. that is, uh, one of their targets is English education. Oh. And they want to go to um, Sharia law, and it, which has been more prominent as an issue in the northwest, south of Kano and Kanduna, but this is in the northeast, okay. in my degree, where lately there's been violence. Um, but in any event, we were in the northeast of the country, in a, a small, near a small village called Waka, and it had been, it was actually a, quite idyllic because it was in the Sahel. Um, it was 
an area that had been um, visited by uh, mission, American missionaries in the 50s who had literally come in by pack, pack horse and converted a small tribe, local tribe, um, to Christianity and had built just through the, their sort of uh, fervent um, energy and sweat these little and with the local people, um, these small uh, flagstone cottages and a little flagstone church and these little school buildings and had started this residential school. Okay. So it was a secondary school and it was, its catchment area was about, um, gosh, maybe 500 miles. So wow. um, it was, but they, they attracted teachers from African, increasingly more African, um, but British and North American, and had built in this very remote area had actually developed quite high standards and children had to um, have had six years of or seven years of, of um, elementary school before they could get in and they had entrance exams. So it was very menial. It was just open with tin roofs and flagstones, um, but it was quite a special area. Um, they had a borehole pump which was constantly broken down, um, but they in the little cottages they they made cement bathtubs, and so whenever the borehole pump was working, we'd all fill up with water <laughs> our, our bathtubs with water, and then we would um, then we had those wonderful, great um, filters with the big chalk candles inside. Oh, we would so we would store the water, and then we'd boil it on our wood stoves, which they brought in these Dover stoves. Oh pump, my goodness! On um, pack horse, so it was quite an idyllic little thing for you know, young people in their mid-twenties um, trying to find adventure and something worthwhile to do in, in um, the world. But we had senior secondary students. They were mostly very, very diligent. Um, they had a sports program. You know, I, as I say, my wife was a legitimate teacher, so she taught literature, including Shakespeare, to oh, these kids, to, um, you know, in the wilderness. And, and the Contiki, I remember when she was... They, they had Contiki, and they had never seen well, seen Lake Chad, some of them, if they might have traveled that far, yeah, but, but never, never seen really water. seen water. Um, <laughs> but uh, I taught... Uh, what did you teach? I taught history okay. and math, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, I ran the sports program, ah. which was great. So we had a wonderful basketball team that it was, it was out of a movie, because this was a fairly remote school, and it was in... Um, it was in what was the Northeast State. It's now been broken into. It was divided after the coup when we were there into three states, and since that's been split further into, um, uh, I don't know how many states now, there's probably ten, but it was a big Northeast State, and we were the country bumpkins, and they had this old broken slab of cement where the which was the basketball court, just in the middle of the <laughs> wilderness, and we just practiced and practiced and practiced, and we started to win games. And the um, Fulani, Hosa Fulani, which is the dominant tribal group there, they're very tall. Yes. And these kids turned into fabulous basketball players. Ah. And so we started going around and, and playing, and we ended up winning the Northeast State Championship. <laughs> Northeast State of, of Nigeria yeah. at that time was... You know, it was over 100 million people, and so the north of the country and the northeast state was probably a third of it. 
Um, so it was a huge population. And these kids, they never, but when they were sort of the bumpkins coming to Maiduguri, the major town, six or eight hours away, but they had, um, they'd never had running shoes and they didn't have uniforms. And so a sports, there was a, a sports shop in Maiduguri, this big old mud city, um, that took them on and sponsored them and gave them shoes and, uh, and uniforms. And so it was quite funny in the first, this big tournament that they came to, their first game, they were all proudly in their <laughs> new running shoes. And, uh, and of course, within about five minutes, they'd all taken them off and thrown, thrown them to the side because they couldn't, they couldn't they have weren't them. used to them. They didn't <laughs> yeah. need them. They, they didn't need them. But they went all the way through this tournament and won it. And then our second year, they won it a second time. Wow. So they became sort of famous as this, uh, as this um, sort of very rural bush team. Yes. Um, but so much pride. But anyway, that was a, a you know, the, the um, Christian influence had been it wasn't insignificant, but it, it, uh, it wasn't dominant. The government had taken over all of these schools, old mission schools, and uh, it was part of the government school system. Uh-huh. And it was very mixed. Um, uh, were there girls and boys? Girls and boys. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they were probably and was it a boarding school or was it? It was a boarding school. They had very, again, these flagstone uh, open sides mm. and then tin roofed. Um, Dormitories. Okay. Um, but they did. But what was fun for uh, for us and, and very fortunate. But they were all sons and daughters of peasant farmers. Oh. And so, and in the Sahel, there are two planting and two uh, harvesting seasons a year. So, and the students had to go back to their villages to help with the harvest and planting. Oh. And so we had about four months off a year when school wasn't in session. So we we had uh, we <laughs> we'd got this old Volkswagen, and we were able to in those four months each year, yes, um, bounce around a lot of the camel trails in West Africa. Which My very goodness, broadly, but we it was an interesting experience. We we had you know the um, as our parents said goodbye to us in September or whatever, 1975 at the airport. Diane's mother said call as soon as you get here get there. <laughs> and of course it was 14 months before we got a call to uh, back to Canada and we in, within Nigeria the phone system well certainly our village and town nearby town had no phone coverage uh, and even in a bigger city the phones very rarely worked within the city or across the country and international calls were just unheard of yes. so 14 months later we were in one of our travels uh, we were at Lome on the coast, uh, the capital of Togo, and there was a French hotel there that had a phone, and we actually got a, an international call. <laughs> E.T. But, call home. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty crazy. But we would, you know, we'd send letters and we'd send our exposed film. Yes. Um, you know, every every couple of weeks we'd send a letter, um, and so Diane's parents built a, an album and the whole time and the and the whole set of letters for two years. So they're a wonderful record. Um, Diane's a wonderful writer, and oh. there is this record of the whole time, plus all of the pictures that went along. But they didn't arrive there for a couple of months, and we'd get, um, I think we had the couple of publications. We got the the New Internationalist, you know, we, we, um, we subscribed to, which was really just starting up then, but it's continued. I see it occasionally now in the newsstand, yes. sort of a progressive... Uh, 
So they did a little they story did. on you? No, no, we'd get it on, on subscription. Oh, you'd get the subscription. Uh, and I oh. think we got, uh, what else did we get? We got McLean's, and I think we, but we get everything, you know. All in one. Well, months late, yeah. often, but it didn't really matter because, <laughs> well, we did have the BBC Foreign Service we could get on our on our um, shortwave radio, um, but it was just this great experience of. Um, well, I hope that we'll be able to see some of that album when we begin to celebrate our fiftieth, and sure. you can oh, share some, some great pictures. Yes, oh, I had a great picture in my in my last um, um, campaign folder in nineteen. My last 2004 was my last election, federal election, mm -hmm. and one of the I had this wonderful picture with my basketball team. Oh, did you? It was just great, a tie-dye T-shirt, and <laughs> these guys are all twice as tall as I. Am. Yeah. But um, you had some other noteworthy uh, companions in Nigeria at the same time, didn't you? Well, we did. Um, we met soon after we we got there. We were introduced by a, a, a Kesso couple who had retired and they were working in my degree uh, and she worked for um, UNICEF she, her background was in teaching and he his background was in the Prairie Alberta uh, consumer cooperatives so oh. he was helping out with the consumer cooperative exp expansion expansion in northern Nigeria but they said well you know the, the when we met we stayed with them in my degree when we first arrived and before we went to our village and they told us of this um, um, blonde, fair-haired woman from Canada, who lived in a you know a, a distant village, and you know I don't know how far it was, but uh, but it turned out to be Suzanne Anton, and she was there. She's a counselor now in Vancouver. She's a counselor in Vancouver, mm -hmm. and so that's where we first met Suzanne in 1975, and she'd been there for a year, and so we overlapped for a year, and okay. then we stayed a year later. Um, but on our way to uh, when we decided to go, it was just when Gordon and Nancy Campbell were coming back, <laughs> and they'd been uh, a more southern spot in in Nigeria as well. So we actually met them through friends in common and saw their slides and, and pictures. So now our premier BC. Now BC. So, so I know you're a humble man and you hardly speak of yourself, but I would like you to tell me a bit about your career after you uh, did that assignment. Um, well, I. Uh, I had been practicing law um, for the year before that, um, and uh, in a sort of a large litigation firm. Um, and I decided, we decided that um, I didn't want to come back to uh, to the firm. I wanted to do something different, and so I wrote to the Legal Aid Society. Um, I had actually volunteered for them one summer when I was in law school, and asked them if they had any any legal jobs uh, for someone who hadn't thought about law for two years. <laughs> and, Teaching and, so, and basketball yeah. coach <laughs> on the side. Yeah. Um, so they um, so I they offered me a job in across from the old Dell Hotel in Surrey, uh -huh. um, just a storefront legal aid office. So that was great fun. I was there, and I I continued in legal aid. Um, legal aid practice, uh, criminal and family and administrative law and all sorts of public law cases, um, and then became executive director of the Legal Services Society of BC uh, in the early 80s. So that was my career for um, 
four years, uh, or a number of years, until we had two children. Uh, and when they were four and seven, we decided to, um, we'd always decided, we'd, we thought, thought of a, a number, we'd certainly had the bug living in <laughs> London for a year and then in, in West Africa for two years. And we decided that once our children were old enough to travel, we would do something else. So in 1985, we, um, we went to Geneva for a year. Um, and I had taken a year's leave of absence, and we um, cashed in our RSPs, such as they were or weren't. <laughs> and uh, and we, um, the kids, we wanted them to be in a French situation. Mm -hmm. And so we were in a little village, lived a little village just outside Geneva. My sister and her family lived there. And there was a very interesting um, international management program at the University of Geneva. Oh, okay. I, um, I got my M international MBA there. Okay. Uh, but it was great fun because we lived near my family's family and my sister's family, and the kids just were totally, this was total immersion, like nobody spoke any English in their school. And so that was very good for them. Um, and then when I came back, I really, I decided that, um, I kept deciding these things when I was away, that I was <laughs> quitting the jobs, <laughs> coming back to what I left. And so I, I guess um, a few months before I'd finished, I was to come back to be executive director of Legal Services Society, but I wrote them and said that I'll come back to sort of take part in, the, in recruiting another executive director, but that I was quitting, basically. Um, but I'd applied um, for this crazy um, sort of hope and a prayer uh, job of ombudsman of BC while I was in Geneva. All right. And um, it was quite funny because they, uh, I had known that Carl Friedman, who'd been the first ombudsman of BC, um, had, was, his term had just ended as we were going to Geneva. and the appointment in BC, which has very polarized politics, has, oh, yes. has um, the provision for an ombudsman is that it has to be the unanimous choice of an all-party committee. Oh, so in fact, the NDP and the Socrates at that time had a veto on each other. Yes. So when I left, I, I thought that would be an interesting job, and it was, you know, but there were hundreds of people applying, but it was too bad the timing wasn't right, and we'd already decided to go away. Well. Sure enough, by uh, December, they still hadn't agreed on someone. And so someone had written to me in Geneva and suggested I apply. And so I, I did, and didn't think much of it. And then one day I got a call from a consultancy in Geneva saying, you know, we've been contacted by the British Columbia uh, legislature, and can you come and have an interview? And so I went and had an interview in downtown Geneva, and it seemed rather strange, and they seemed very strange to them. And, mm -hmm. um, but then I didn't hear anything for a while. Um, and then I was doing a consulting project, which was part of this MBA international course in, in Norway. And I was all over Northern Europe, but I was in, in Oslo. And I got this call saying, um, can you be in Victoria for in Vancouver, as I said, for an interview. Um, this was a Monday on Thursday. And it was right in the middle of this research I was doing. And they paid for it. And I just, OK. So I had about an hour interview. Anyway, this is all. So you got the job. Yeah, I got the job. I didn't you know did. what I was going to do after yes. this experience there, but this was an interesting thing. So I did that for six years. Okay. But you don't want to hear any, any more about that. 
Yeah. I, what I, happened I, next in terms of your career? What was the next career jump? Well, when I when I say you don't want to hear all this, uh, Diane was mentioning to me the other, reminding me the other day that I've had nine completely different jobs. I in bet. Thirty six years. I googled <laughs> you and I was looking at that. This man is intriguing. Well, <laughs> well it's uh, <laughs> longest six, shortest f two. Average four. Okay. And this one's five here. So. This one's five. And you <laughs> so did something we'll at UVic, and you also did something as a politician. Tell us that quickly. Um, well, after I was ombudsman, I was commissioner of resources and environment for BC. Oh, okay. Which was set up um, by the Mike Harcourt's government to be an independent facilitator of sustainable land use plans for the province, sort of to try and deal with the... Uh, all of the different parties in the war in the woods, as it was being called at the time. Okay. The environmental um, dis uh, you know, uh, disputes. And, and so we had, uh, it was four years running this commission where we independently reported to government, but publicly and independently to government. But we would have, uh, they were all public negotiations with 20 different parties from environmentalists and labor and youth and industry and all levels of government. So that was sort of an exciting time. Um, and then I became, uh, when that finished, I became Deputy Attorney General. Oh, okay. And so that was, that was some exciting I times. guess. There was, I was, for the week I was appointed, um, and Ujjal Dasanj had just been appointed Attorney General, mm -hmm. and I was Deputy Attorney General, and, uh, which is the non-political side. Um, Gustafson, Gustafson Lake blew up. Oh uh, my goodness. So for the first 30 days of this new job, it was literally 24 hours a, a day in touch with the senior RCMP people just as that. There were two major gun battles and that sort of closing of the ring to try and bring that to a peaceful end and nobody was killed uh, in the end. But it was um, it was a very, complex. very complex and, and of dangerous time for the people directly involved. Um, and then I went to UVic, yes. I went as a law, had a wonderful, oh, most wonderfully well-upholstered chair called the David Lamb Chair of Law and Public Policy. Okay. And that was um, just wonderful. One, because I just adore David Lamb, and he's one of our most distinguished British Columbians, I think. Um, but he's also a great philanthropist and had endowed yes. this chair. But I was teaching at the law school and director of the Institute for Dispute Resolution. Oh, okay. And this was wonderful because it I'd been doing a lot of work in uh, conflict resolution in mostly in Southeast Asia, in Thailand and Cambodia. And I was able to expand that with this institute um, where we were expanded our work in Southeast Asia and ended up working in um, Latin America and uh, a number of projects in Africa. Um, so that was a very interesting uh, number of years at UVic. And now but, you're here. Well, then I fell off the political cliff uh, a week before the election was called in, federal election called in October of 2000. Um, uh, Ted McQuinney, who was the MP for Vancouver Quadra oh, um, yes. announced that he was not going to run again. Yes. And so through various strange mechanisms, we were living in Victoria then, and um, 
my wife was teaching at an international language school. Um, we, um, within a week of the election, we did, we uh, decided we were going to run back in our home, which was Vancouver. Uh, so <laughs> it was very strange because I was still teaching, and uh, we were sort of, I, I arranged with the president of UVic that I would continue teaching my law classes, but I wouldn't take a salary, mm -hmm. and in return they would fly me back and forth from the middle <laughs> of the campaign on by the helicopter, the helijet. Oh my so it was crazy, but you know, within a week we were in a five-week campaign, and within six weeks we were standing in the snow in Ottawa saying, what on earth have we done? Um, so then we had three wonderful elections, and, okay. but it was in six and a half years, wow. and Diane was able to um, teach for UBC online in international education as her field in intercultural communication. And our kids had, were away at university then, and so and we were able to do it as a, as a couple. Uh, so it was just a great adventure for two years in Jean Chrétien's cabinet and two years in Paul Martin's. And, one year in opposition, which wasn't nearly as much fun, but it was an interesting experience, <laughs> all the same. And then we just decided that that we wouldn't didn't want to run in another election, so we we um, put out a news release saying so that our writing association could choose a, another person mm -hmm. to run in the next election. And um, various things happened, and I ended up at UBC. And so now your position at UBC is well, it's a it's a it's a strange title. It's um, Vice President of External Legal and Community Relations, okay. and it um, brings together a lot of things from the university, the legal work of the university and the university council as part of the portfolio, okay. um, the public affairs, which is all of the media um, and communications work of the university. Um, we have the learning exchange in the downtown east side, where we have a thousand students a year tutoring in inner city schools or working in NGOs um, for credit, most of them were getting, mm. trying to work them, their research and journals and things into into credit courses. Um, it includes Robson Square, the downtown campus, which is now under reconstruction, you've yes. seen, yes. but it will become a tremendous, it'll be the unaccredited international media site during the Olympics, uh, where there'll be, and that's the big one, well there are four or five thousand journalists from all over the world taking over our campus, and but it will be now wired. That'll be part of the legacy to UBC yes. for wonderful streaming all over the world. So that's going to become a real UBC global center of, of sort of outreach. Um, wow. What else do we have? We have the Olympic office uh, here. We're a venue for Paralympics and Olympics, uh, mm. ice, uh, ice skating and hockey and sledge hockey. Um, we've got the ceremonies, uh, so including, you know, 28 uh, graduation ceremonies a year and something going on all the time. Now uh, you have that. Now we have that. Uh, that's all part of this funny portfolio. Wow. And community <laughs> engagement. So it's, so it's legal, but it's governmental. All yes. government relations is done through here. Mm -hmm. And um, a big chunk of international. We do the international development work. Uh, we have a special arrangement with UN Habitat. Uh, in Nairobi, that we are the UBC is now the global repository and exchange of uh, all of the UN systems information on human settlements, oh, and okay. that goes back. I mean, it's just we've just concluded that recently and are building this this capacity, hmm. uh, but it goes back to UBC and Vancouver being the site of Habitat 
1976. Yes, and Arthur Erickson. Yes. Yes, and uh, and uh, and Peter Oberlander. Yes. Um, but the Center for Human Settlements here at UBC became the home of what became UN Habitat after the Habitat Conference. Okay. That now is a full program of the UN. Wow. So when Habitat Plus 30, 2006, um, I, when I was a minister in Ottawa, yes. I had um, presented under the firm direction of Peter Oberlander, who unfortunately has passed away, but um, of the World Urban Forum coming to Vancouver as oh, Habitat Plus wow. 30. Uh -huh. um, so that rolled into then being here at UBC and that. continuing this, um, this program and having a formal agreement. Um, so that's sort of, that's a, a fun part of it as well. And we have the Olympic office and... Uh, what an amazing career and time you've had on this planet so far. <laughs> well, just getting started. <laughs> I think so. Right. And looking at you, you look like you're just getting started. You look healthy and, and I really appreciate and want to thank you on behalf of QSOVSO for the service you gave us okay. so many years ago. Well, let me tell you that, uh, and this is, couldn't be more so for Diane and me, that that was uh, a turning point in our life and it's you know it's said often and probably always but it's by people who have had that experience but it is life-altering it you cannot look at humanity or yourself in the mirror in the same way um, when you've uh, had an experience like that in your mid-twenties it's uh, so we, we were blessed by that experience thank you so much sir and have a great day <laughs> thanks so much I'm at UBC at the, is it the Senate? The Board and Senate Room. The Board and Senate Room. Of In the Administration Building. Which is a beautiful place. And I'm sitting with Professor John Conway. And do I call you Professor Emeritus or? Yes. That's, tell me about your um, work with, with international development and how it all began at UBC. Well, I joined UBC in 1957 and was almost immediately enrolled in, with one of my students in the World University Service Committee, which has existed on the campus for several years and to which I have since belonged for the past 52 years. And this is a very active student faculty group which is concerned with international affairs and particularly with international development. And in more recent years, they have developed a very excellent sponsorship program for refugee students at UBC. So that was also where I began. And uh, it was through these contacts, and particularly my students in the field of international relations, that I got to know the, the discussions that were going on, particularly in 1960, uh, regarding uh, the, the needs of Africa, because that was the year in which they had this great uh, blow-up in the Congo and the expeditionary force, and then next year when Hammarskjöld, the UN secretary, went out there and were killed, you know, and all that sort of great excitement and directed us to this. It was just at this time that the President of the United States, in elect John Kennedy, had the idea of, of uh, starting up a Peace Corps and there were people in Canada, including several of my students, who thought that this was a splendid idea, but they wanted to do it themselves rather than wait for the initiative to be taken by the government. 
So two of them, Michael Clegg and Brian Marson, they were, I think, both in the uh, final years, about to graduate in arts, uh, they decided that they would approach the president of the university here, Dr. Norman Mackenzie, uh, to see if uh, he was in, be in favor of sponsoring an initiative on this of this kind. So they wrote him a letter, and uh, we have now got this letter, dated December the 1st, 1960, in which they asked for his support in promoting this idea. The president's response was that this was an excellent student initiative on which he was greatly impressed, and he immediately asked his deputy, uh, Dr. Jeff Andrew, to convene a meeting in this very room where we're now sitting, and that mean within two weeks uh, this meeting was set up. This included uh, the Dean of Arts, the Dean of Graduate Studies, uh, Dean Fred Sauer, the head of the History Department, uh, uh, Dean Gage, who was the sort of Dean of Men and all scholarships and all that stuff. They were, uh, Dean of Law, a very distinguished group. And these two students were then asked to come and present their case, which they did with great aplomb, and everybody thought it was a great idea. And uh, it was what, uh, what the result was uh, that a continuing committee was established under the president's sort of umbrella, and um, uh, the, uh, one of the leading members of the faculty in uh, anthropology and sociology, Dr. Cyril Belshaw, who had extensive experience through his research in various parts of the world, I was asked to chair this committee, and I think I was the secretary, and so uh, we got into business. And uh, through Cyril's contacts in Africa, he uh, uh, received a, a letter from people, some people in the government of Ghana, uh, where they said that uh, they were very much in need of young people coming from places in Canada if they had the right kind of experience and qualifications. And they would certainly undertake to employ these people if we would do the selection and recruitment and ensure that they were the right kind of people. What so, did you call yourselves at this point? Well, I think we were the President's Committee on Overseas Service, okay. something like that. Right. And so uh, within a very short while, uh, the committee met and we interviewed uh, two or three people from the uh, Home Economics Department, and two of these were in fact uh, sent to Ghana and were the first people to leave Canada under this whole procedure. Do you remember their names? Yes, I have their names, but not with me. Okay. Uh, I can find that for you. All right. Uh, Judy, uh, one, one's called Judy, somebody or other. But uh, I, I, it's in the letter. I okay. Um, anyway, that uh, got off a good start. Uh, this was, of course, financed from the other end, I think with a, a little bit of fundraising to get them properly equipped uh, with the right medical uh, training and the right medical inoculations and all that sort of thing, but off they went to Ghana and they served there for two years. So then uh, it uh, was just at this time, uh, while this was going on, uh, that various other groups, such as the people in Toronto, people in McGill, uh, thought that uh, yes, we should have this on a national scale. And so in uh, various negotiations took place and uh, uh, in June, 
in 1961, a large meeting was held under the auspices of the um, Association of University Presidents and Colleges of Canada, and the presidents uh, usually met at that time, and so one of their sessions was devoted to the idea of could they establish under their auspices a national organization. And so this uh, was the occasion when, for instance, uh, Mr. Louis Perrinbaum, who had, had had been the general secretary of the World University Service in Toronto and uh, was much engaged in exactly these lines, he volunteered uh, that he would uh, lend his hand to uh, organize this at the, at the national level and did so. And so uh, I think uh, from that meeting in uh, McGill, uh, the national structure was set up and the various people that are already in the field from UBC and uh, the group that went out from Toronto, organized by Keith Spicer, and I think another couple of others from uh, Quebec. I think the Cardinal Leger was uh, responsible. Anyway, they decided they would merge their efforts and they would have one organization to be known as the Canadian University Service Overseas. Uh, so that's how it got going. And after a few months, they summoned back one of these chaps who had been sent out to Ceylon, a fellow called McQuinney, and he uh, was put in charge as a full-time uh, uh, office coordinator in uh, Ottawa. And was Louis Perenbaum still and involved? Louis Perenbaum was, so to speak, the, 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 the grey eminence behind the scenes because he was already... Um, Assistant Secretary to the Canadian UNESCO Commission, oh. so he was never actually paid, but it was he was the gave great in, impetus mm. to this whole procedure. Yeah. And then um, uh, the big operation uh, uh, clearly it was going to be very popular, but the main difficulty was lack of funds. Yes. So uh, McQuinney, <coughs> I think Spicer already had approached the. the uh, then government of Diefenbaker, and had received a fairly cool uh, response, because uh, the bureaucrats at that time felt that they were the government of Canada, and they were spending the taxpayers' money, but they didn't see any reason why the taxpayers' money should be spent on these private agencies, such as the Canadian University Service overseas. So uh, it took a, a, about a year or so and the election uh, of Lester Pearson was certainly, uh, in 1963, was certainly uh, crucial in obtaining a funding for CUSO uh, directly from the government, the Office of External Aid, mm -hmm. as it was called then. Later on, of course, that office was devolved into the Canadian International Development Agency, CEDA, in about 1968 or 9, and Louis Berenbaum became a vice president with relations to the voluntary sector, so it all fitted in very beautifully. <laughs> what a story! We got, we got a lot of money, <laughs> and so uh, the, uh, the program expanded, and uh, uh, at the other end, of course, uh, uh, didn't take very long for various uh, 
people to discover that yes, Canadian youth, young people, of talented and willing and to volunteer, were ready to go out to various places, and so they were very quickly snapped up by such countries as Nigeria, where there was a great shortage and need for teachers. So, for example, uh, the secondary schools were very often, many of them had at least one, if not more than one, uh, Canadian volunteer to serve there. Uh, this includes such people as the present Premier of British Columbia, Mr. Gordon Campbell, and his wife. Yes. And uh, they were succeeded in Nigeria by the present uh, Vice President of UBC, Mr. Stephen Owen, formerly the MP for this, for this area, and a cabinet minister. And uh, another of our distinguished graduates was uh, Reverend Walter McLean, who went out to Biafra and was much involved in that sad story and, and uh, came back and raised a lot of funds for Biafra, a uh, direct result of his experience with CUSO. <laughs> And then the programs uh, expanded into different parts of the world. Uh, they did uh, begin with, they sent a, a group to India, but then the Indian government uh, thought, well, why should we be employing Canadian young graduates? We have thousands of unemployed graduates in India, so why don't we use them? So the, Cana the Canadian CUSO program in India was, was eventually phased out. But not before one of them, or two of the uh, volunteers who went out from uh, the Toronto area uh, were seconded uh, to go and work with Tibetan refugees who were just flooding into India across the Himalayas under the auspices of the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama uh, uh, said, yes, he could very well use uh, Canadian volunteers. Please send them along. So one of our friends, uh, Mrs. Was now uh, Miss Judy Pullen, who uh, was out there with uh, the CUSO, first initial CUSO team, she uh, went and uh, was transferred uh, to work with the Tibetans. Eventually, she ran a Tibetan uh, sort of teacher training course up in the Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was to make his headquarters. She even married a distinguished member of the Tibetan aristocracy. And thereafter, they were sent by the Dalai Lama to South India, where they were in charge of the resettlement of some several thousand Tibetan farmers on a patch of, of uh, spare land down there. So uh, she uh, and uh, her husband did a wonderful job. And uh, she was, in fact, awarded the Order of Canada as a result. So those are the kind of people that we were you know, involved with uh, at, the, at the beginning. That's fantastic. So as a professor here at UBC, you taught history. But and what international relations. And international relations, yes. okay. And um, what was uh, some of your uh, specialty areas? Well, my own particular area was Germany. So I had nothing to do with developing countries as such. Yes. But, uh, um, naturally, my my sort of interests were very much in the current international affairs, oh. and so that uh, included yeah, all these schemes, and so CUSO and WUS were very much in my sort of bailiwick. 
Wonderful. Well, I really, really appreciate the time we're spending together. And also, John, um, you're going to help and be there for a celebration in Vancouver, and we hope it'll be at UBC in December 2010. Yes. And I encourage all alumni to contact me, and let's start to plan this fabulous right. day. Now, you suggested that it might take place on the International Day for the International Volunteer. That happens to be a Sunday. Yes, it is a Sunday. Okay. So we probably would want to have a, if we have a celebratory dinner, yes. to which the Vice President has kindly agreed, um, it will probably have to be maybe on, on the anniversary of the date when the letter to okay, President what McKenzie was that late again? December the 1st. December the 1st, Which okay. would be a Wednesday. Okay. Might be even better, you know. Oh, yeah. We can make the copies of the letter easily available because they're in the archives. And uh, I'm going to be looking through your boxes to find yeah, that. That's right. Well, thank you, Professor. Not a bit. For you your like time it. and energy and your efforts in helping to begin the beginnings of QSO. Yeah, I'm glad. Very glad to be Thank you.